Well, good morning. Welcome to High Street. I'm excited to be with you this morning. My name is Jared. Hey, this morning we get to talk about contentment. Contentment. Um, if you are here, you would probably like to be content about something. Um, I remember I was taking an economics class at Missouri State, and one of the, the professor explained economics as the distribution of scarce or limited resources around unlimited wants. The distribution of scarce or limited resources around lim limitless or unlimited wants. Um, I don't know about you, but there's probably been something that you wanted, that you got, and then you forgot about, right? It's, it's April, Christmas was four months ago, and I, for the life of me, I'm sorry, Tyler, my wife, I can't remember what I got for Christmas. I just can't remember. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's left my mind. Um, my son Thatcher, he's five, and uh, he's always perpetually, regardless of when it is, looking for um, his next birthday present. Okay, so his birthday is in October, and um, he will be somewhere at a store. Hey, Dad, can you take a picture of that so we can, like, get it when it's time to get my Christmas or my birthday list? Like, yeah, that's fine, so we'll take a picture of it. And it doesn't matter if his birthday was a month ago or it's in two months. I mean, it's constantly happening. I, Tyler went on a trip. My wife went on a trip, and I was looking at pictures on her phone of um, the trip and what was going on. And um, then randomly there's a picture of, like, a dragon at Target. And I was like, ah, oh, birthday, yep, that's it. Um, the, the, the amount of things that we want are limitless. They're limitless. Um, but how do you be comfortable? How do you uh, be content? How can we be content when we're not comfortable? How can we be content when we're not comfortable? About five years ago, I was uh, lifting something and moving something. It wasn't super heavy, but it was, it was there. And I was, I was walking, and I thought that someone, it felt like someone stabbed something into my lower back. And I'm walking, and I turned around to see who was there, and it was just old age getting to me, okay? And um, I'm walking, and I was like, oh my gosh, that was nobody. That's just like a disc slipped or something. And I, I like went home, and I'm trying to like do normal stuff, and um, was never really right. And I remember going to work, and I would sit in my chair and I had to sit like this. And I remember Chris Talbert came in and he goes, you gonna go to the doctor? I was like, why would I need to go to the doctor? Um, and he's like, well, cause you're about to fall out of your chair. Um, and I remember going home one of those first nights that I had a back problem and laying down in my, like I couldn't find the right pillow in our house that wouldn't let my back feel normal and let me sleep. And it might not be a back problem, and it might not be a, a toy dragon, but there's probably something that's making you not content this morning. There's probably something that you're like, ah, if I only had this, then I would be content. I remember being 15 and thinking, when I can drive, then that'll be it. And then it was, when I get money, that'll be it. When I get a girlfriend, then when I go to college, when I move out of my parents' house, when I, and it was this perpetual list of things that was right out of my reach, and I'll finally be happy when that next thing comes, and it feels unattainable. Because once you get it, you're like, oh, it's, I mean, it's not everything I thought it was. It's not all it's cracked up to be. But there's always something. Maybe it's not one of those things. Maybe it's like, okay, I will be content when I have some people that know me for who I am and truly love me. Maybe it's not a thing, maybe it's not the next place in life, maybe it's if people really knew who I was, they, they probably wouldn't love me, so I'm just going to be content where I'm at, and contentment for you is this kind of 
It's fine where I'm at. This is what life looks like, and it's fine. Well, the reality is is that we can be content. God has hope for us to be content, and we read it in Philippians. If you want to go to Philippians 4, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screen. In Philippians, Paul is writing to to a church, and he's writing them because he's thankful for a gift that they gave him. In those times, uh, if you were in prison, Paul was in prison, and uh, he was thankful for a gift that they gave because you didn't just get a rationed meal, you didn't just get water, you had to be given something from someone outside of prison. So he is thankful that this group gave him something. And it's just important to remember, he's writing this within prison walls. Chances are he is chained to a guard to make sure he doesn't go anywhere or do anything. And I want you to read in verse 10 in chapter 4. This is what it says. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what happened is he was in jail for a little while, and I'm assuming things, uh, news moved slow back then, and they didn't know he was there, or the right people didn't hear about it, and he didn't get sent anything for a while. And he's, this almost feels like a prepositional phrase to me, what we're about to read, because it's almost like he could have just done without it. It's like this classic Paul run-on sentence where he's like this kind of rambling thing, but he's like, hey, listen, I I know you wanted to, but you didn't have opportunity. Maybe you wanted to give, but you didn't have the money, you didn't have the resources, you didn't have the margin. This is where he's arguing from. And then the next phrase, it's almost like he's covering up like, okay, I may have said this and it seemed like this, but this is what I want you to understand. Look at verse 11. So he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, look at that word, underline it in your Bible, try to understand it. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. And that's the first place when I read this, I stopped and I thought, okay, I know people that are naturally kind of content with whatever situation they're in. They'll get bad news and it's like, ah, well, everything happens for a reason. Everything's good. Like, and you're like, oh, well, that's crazy. Like, how are you okay in the middle of this crazy thing that happened? Yeah, I got in a car accident this morning, but everything's going to be okay. It's like, what? Do you, not, do you not understand the depth of the problem? Like, you're just okay. What Paul is saying here is that it can be learned. One of my favorite things about being a parent is having like, other kids at our house and, and, and like our friends' kids, our friends with our kids, and it's a fun thing. And guys, kids are weird. Like if you got kids, you know it, but kids just do weird, weird stuff. Um, my youngest kid, he's one and a half, whatever he's eating, regardless of what it is or the size, the whole thing gets popped in his mouth. Regardless of what it is, regardless of if that presents him with any, any danger, uh, regardless of the consistency of the item, the whole thing goes in his mouth right away all the time. And uh, sometimes it's fun to like look at my wife and go, hey, that's learned behavior. He saw that somewhere and he chose to do that. Like that funny little dance he's doing, he saw you do that and he's doing it now. And it's just a funny little joke to say that, hey, that's learned behavior. Because things happen in both ways, right? There's nature and there's nurture. You, you see things happen and you repeat them and you also just are born and you just do things the way that you want to do them. But I I like to make the argument that like, oh, you saw that somewhere and you did it. What Paul's arguing here is that contentment can be a learned behavior. And we listen to that and we're like, can it? Like, are you serious? Paul's saying, hey, I'm not in need, I'm, I'm good. I've learned that I can be content. 
And he doesn't just say, hey, I can be content when things are good, when things are better than the average. I can be content um, when things seem like they're going well. He says, in whatever situation. And that rubs me the wrong way. Because I can be doing almost anything, and if things don't go my way, I can be not content in any situation. But Paul's saying, I've learned that I can be content in any situation. And and you look at Paul and you're like, okay, did he just not understand? Like, did he, was he one of those people that's like, you have to sit him down and be like, yo, Paul, like, you're in jail. Like, see that thing that that jingle jangles every time you move your arm? That's a chain and it's connected to a wall and you're connected to a guard. Like, that's not good, Paul. But he says, hey, in whatever situation, whether you're angry or sad or happy or lonely or confused or in chaos, whether you've been abandoned, whether you've been hurt, whether you feel like you've failed, you can have contentment. And it's like, Paul, do you really get it? Do you really understand like all the things that you can go through and you're saying you can be content? Like you're you're, you're in a jail cell. Do you just not understand? And I want you to read something that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. It's gonna be up on the screen in just a moment. He said, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. He presents this difficult situation, but the finality of it, he says, hasn't gotten there yet. Afflicted, yeah, but not crushed. Another version says pressed, but not destroyed. Confused, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. I mean, he, he has this attitude that like, hey, things are difficult. He's not just saying, hey, you can be content when things are right. He's saying, hey, it's not as bad as it could be. And look at, he goes on in verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul's doing here is he's helping put in perspective his hope that he has in Jesus. This deep-rooted contentment that he finds not in his situation, not in anything else, but in the person of Jesus. Can I tell you, I've seen this. I've seen this in some of you. I've seen this in people in our church. And it doesn't mean that situations aren't sad. It doesn't mean we don't cry tears. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we don't ask God to do what he can do in a situation. But it does mean that we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We don't lose heart. We're afflicted, but we're not crushed struck down but we're not destroyed it's unbelievable Paul says we can have that 
So look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. There it is again. He says, in good and in bad, in high and in low, I know how to abound. In every circumstance, every circumstance, the circumstance that you're in now, that you're thinking, I've just got to make it change. I've just got to get out of that house. I've just got to get under from that debt. I've just got to get in a relationship. I've just got to get out of a relationship. I just got to get around some good friends. I just got to get away from my bad friends. I've got to figure this out. He says, in every circumstance, in whatever situation. It's not saying that things will be perfect. When you read about Paul there, you have to understand what he had been through. His life had changed so drastically. He was someone who obeyed the law to a T, and Christians came along and they were saying, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. He fulfilled the law, and now we follow him, and that rubbed him the wrong way. So what he did was he persecuted them, he pushed them down, He harassed them, he harmed them, and then one day while he's walking down a road, he has this experience with Jesus and he's forever changed. And even through that experience, the kindness of Jesus was given to him through believers. Unbelievable story. But if you look at Paul's life, Paul's life did not get easier once he started believing Jesus. Paul's life got significantly harder. Paul talks about his life and he said, I was shipwrecked, I was abandoned. He was whipped 39 times, which was supposed to kill someone. He was beaten with rods and my least favorite, snake bitten. Like, can't stand that, I'm out. If there's a snake in this situation, I'm washing my hands of it, sell the house, move across town, it's not worth it. And Paul writes these things and he's like, but we don't lose heart. And it's like, Paul, do you not get it? Like, somebody needs to tell him the present situation. And he's like, no, you can be content. But in verse 12, I love this. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. And I don't know about you, but when someone says the word secret, I go, you got to tell me. If you whisper, I'm like, I wonder what they said. We love a good secret. We love gossip. We love to know something that shouldn't be known. And often a secret is something scandalous. It's something difficult to understand. It's something that is counter to what we already know and understand. And he says, hey, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And it's a secret in contentment. And I think we spend so much of our lives and so much of our time Chasing after this secret to contentment, hoping that it will, like a key in a lock, fit and make sense and unlock so much for us in our lives. In my prep for this, I just started Googling, what, is, what brings contentment? And you have to search contentment or Google and the rest of the world will think you're searching for content and it's a different thing. So you search for contentment. Why aren't we content? What, how do we find contentment? And the first two things that came up were, hey, the things that bring up a lack of contentment are ambition and curiosity. It's like, those are good things. Like, something that the world said we should have is, hey, if you're ambitious, squash it. If you're curious, can't have it anymore and be content, you have to kill those things within yourself if you are to be content. And I don't think the Bible tells us that. 
It says that you just have a, a need for change, that there's people that are just, they, they gotta go from one thing to the next. They gotta go from relationship to relationship, from friend group to friend group, from major to major, from job to job. And we know people like that. Some of us are like that. You gotta be moving. You gotta have change. You gotta have something. That there's, well, this one was my favorite because I think it's closest to the truth. It said that we, we are numb to things that normally bring us awe. And I think they're onto something, that we end up seeing something that should make us worship our creator, and we go, nah, no big deal. Used to it. It's normal. It's fine. That we're people pleasers. I love, Morgan talked about before she was a believer, she was like, I'm such a people pleaser. I can be a people pleaser. That we end up not being content because we just go, I'm just going to do whatever the people around me want me to do. Well, all the people around me are going to change they're not going to expressly communicate what they want from me all the time, so I'm going to end up doing things for people, and it's not going to be a clear representation of what God has for me, what God wants me to be for them, and I'm going to end up serving something that's not communicated and not clear, and I'm going to be failing and missing the mark of contentment. The last one that it talked about was bad company, that people around us will lead us to not be content, and I think they're, along, they're, they're onto something. And in all this reading and even just thinking about the way that people are, the way that I am, is I think that we live on two ends of a spectrum and we run from one side to the other. And that's complacency and control. I think in some aspects of our life we can be complacent and we can say, what does it matter? At the end of the day, does it matter? Early on in life I learned the phrase from my dad, good enough for who it's for. You're doing work and you're like, ah, it's good enough for who it's for, Right? good enough for government work. You're just like, ah, it's fine. This is fine. It's good enough. And you end up being complacent. Why? Because you're comfortable wherever you're at. You're comfortable with the situation that you're in. You're just fine. It's okay. And we end up accepting this view of contentment as this dumbed down, numb thing to, ah, it's going to be fine. I guess it's going to be okay. It's complacency. If there's a problem, just cover it up. And I think it's this idea that like, man, if, if we can be in relationship with someone and we have this ugly part of our lives, yeah, I just cover it up. They wouldn't want to see that. They wouldn't really like you for who you are. And we're complacent in our relationships. We're complacent in our pursuits. That's the squashing, the ambition, and the curiosity that God maybe gave you. And then on the other hand, we have Control. I will be content when I fill in the blank. I will be content when I get fill in the blank. I will be content when this happens. I will be content when this is completed. I will be content. And, and what's crazy to me is that if I pulled everybody in the room and says, what would it mean to be content for you? No two people would be the same. Some of y'all want to be alone. Some of y'all want to be at a party. Some of y'all want to be in the mountains. Some of y'all want to be at the beach. Some of y'all want to be eating steak. Some of y'all want to be eating seafood. I mean, it's all different. And no two people are going to be the same, so we can't have this cookie-cutter view of this is what contentment looks like because we want to control all these things. We want to have a hand in it. We want to make sure we do it. And we're slow to let go of it, and we're slow to pick anything up and do anything. And we, I can be complacent and controlling all in the same day. I can say, oh, I don't care what happens today. And then when something doesn't go my way, I get angry. Why? What's wrong with us? Why can't we be content? 
I even think that we can be not content controlling, trying to do good things for God. God, I showed up, I served, I did what you, I gave. Bring me my contentment. That's the deal, right? God, I worked till I was dead tired. I just about burnt out is the phrase we use in ministry. Why am I not content? Two of my favorite things that that we get to read um, in the Bible, one of my favorite things is uh, Solomon wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, and Solomon was both one of the richest men ever and what the Bible describes as one of the wisest men ever. And when you read through Ecclesiastes, it starts off in the first three chapters where he's searching for something. He's searching for fulfillment. He's searching for something that will bring him meaning, something that will bring him life, something that will give him hope. And at first, the first thing he says is, I thought it was wisdom. I thought if I had wisdom, then I would be fulfilled. And he says, the search of wisdom is vanity. It's a veneer. It's, it's just face value. You just get what you get. And then he says, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like you get it and it's gone. And then he goes along and he says, okay, maybe it's experience. And he says, I didn't deny myself anything. He says, I built everything that I could until I was the greatest in Jerusalem. And it was all vanity. It wasn't it. And then he started to get this kind of weird introspection where he's like, the wise man and the unwise man both die. So why even bother? Control and complacency. And at the end of each of these phrases, he gets to, it's vanity, it's chasing after the wind. Do you feel like you're just chasing after the wind? The things that you pursue, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, are they eternal, are they purposeful, or are they a chasing after the wind? One of my favorite quotes, um, and it's such a sad narrative in so many levels, is from Tom Brady. I've talked about Tom Brady before, and I was just 11 years old, 12 years old, when Tom Brady broke my heart. I was 10 when the Rams won the Super Bowl in St. Louis, and um, uh, uh, two years later, Tom Brady, in the last-ditch effort, broke my heart and won the Super Bowl, and the Rams were never the same again, and they left St. Louis, broke my heart, and Tom Brady just kept winning for the next, like, 20 years and really put it in my eye, so it was fun. Um, but in, I think it was 2007 or 2008, Tom Brady was at the height. I mean, I mean, he was 27. He'd won three Super Bowls. He'd won a couple MVPs. A couple years later, he would marry one of the most famous supermodels that are alive. Like, things could not be better for this guy. He had huge contracts, huge sponsorship dollars. And he was doing an interview with, I think, 60 Minutes. And I want to read you something that he said. He said, there's times where I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I've reached my goal in life. There's got to be more than this. I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the interviewer said, what's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. And it's such a sad commentary to both his life and the state of our souls. He achieved everything 
that anyone would ever want to achieve. Money, relationship, power, status. There's got to be more than this. The number one reason that you look at, if you look up how to find contentment online, he says you have to kill comparison. You have to kill comparison. And then you look at Solomon and you look at Tom Brady and all the people in between and you go, they didn't have anyone to compare themselves to. They made it. They arrived. They succeeded. They sat at the top of the mountain and said, no one else can be compared to us and still I don't understand why I don't have hope, why I don't have contentment. But in Philippians 4.12, Paul said, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any any, and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And even within the word hunger, there's a discontentment, right? We're getting close to lunchtime and y'all are like, I can see you moving, like I'm ready for lunch. But he said, even in hunger, I can be content. Even in something that your body desires, I can be content. He says, it's a secret. And we lean in and we say, Paul, just tell us what the secret is. And we get to Philippians 4.13 and it's one of the most misquoted verses of all time. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's not talking about making a free throw. He's not talking about doing all the things on, the, on, on a field or a court. What he's talking about is I can be content in any and every circumstance because of the strength that God gives me. He's not saying everything around me will start going right. What he's saying is that there is a peace that will live in my soul that cannot change based on the external circumstances. The word that he uses for content It's almost like a self-sufficiency, but we know that Paul's not saying he's self-sufficient. He's saying it's inside of him because Christ is what gives him strength. Strength that comes from a new perspective. It's what we read in 2 Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. He had an understanding. This world is not meant to fulfill me, Jesus is. This world is not meant to fulfill us, Jesus is. The things of this world are not meant to fulfill us, Jesus is. The things that we love in this world, he's not saying, hey, just you don't get to enjoy anything. He said, hey, in hunger and abundance, it's both. But if we miss those, we miss Jesus for those things, we're stopping at the signpost for the thing that is the most important. In 2011, I had the opportunity to go to Senegal, Africa, and Senegal, Africa um, is the westernmost tip of Africa. And Senegal sits like uh, a U around the, the, the country of Ghana that follows the, the Ghana River. And uh, when we got there, it was on a mission trip, and when we got there, you land in Dakar, the big city that kind of sits on the tip, and then we had to drive all the way around that U to get to the place that we were going to go and and, uh, do this mission project. And when you land, you drive for 13 hours across these roads, and it's abject poverty for 13 hours. I mean, it's just, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It wasn't like, oh, we're passing through a bad part of town, lock the doors. It was like we're passing through a bad part of the country for 13 hours. It was bad. And you start getting to the place um, 
where there's a group of believers that we would work with and we'd go out and tell the stories of Jesus to different tribes and groups. And um, when you'd get to a village, there were these groups of maybe 10 or 15 uh, huts. And these groupings would have a mango tree that they would build their huts around. And then it was two or three mud huts with thatched straw roofs. And um, there was just this one that had eight or 10 at it. And when we got there, we said, what, why, why is there one with eight or 10? It's because this husband and wife that were believers would invite people in to live with them. And when, the, when there was someone in their community that would accept Christ, oftentimes what would happen is if it was a woman, the husband would say, hey, you can't be a believer and be my wife and kick them out of their family, close them off from their family. And they had no way of sustaining life for themselves. So this husband and wife would say, you can come live with us. And they'd build them a hut. And then you had children that maybe they were born out of wedlock or in an undesirable situation and they would just say we're just going to leave them and word of mouth would travel and this husband and wife would come and get this child and say you can live with us because they have value because they are imprinted with the image of God and they would be children that would be born that had severe disabilities and they, the parents would say, we don't want them anymore. And this couple would say, you still follow the imprint of the image of God. We're gonna take you in and love you. So there are eight or 10 huts where there's normally two or three. And we get there and, and one of the things that just absolutely shook me to my core was they have nothing, nothing. It's abject poverty. I looked up, abject poverty is $1.90 a day and these people were living on much, much less than that. Much less. But they had a joy and a peace about them that couldn't be explained by their external circumstances. The thing that stood out to me one of the most was there's a little boy who had some severe disabilities. He could move around, he couldn't really communicate um, besides some hand gestures and some noises sweet little boy. We'd play soccer with him. The other kids would play soccer with him for a minute and then go, okay, let's have our real game and kind of kick him out. And you know, you just had a heart for this little boy. He was so, you just loved him because he was so sweet and follow us around. We'd, we'd talk with him and we were there for a couple of days and there was this couple that was on the trip and they came to the, the, the group and they said, hey, we're, we don't know what it looks like. We don't know if this is the right thing to do. We're just going to ask, but what would it look like to get him to the States with us, if we could adopt him, if he could be with us and our family and he, we could be with him. We don't know what it looks like, but we're just gonna ask. We're just gonna see what it looks like. So they went and talked to uh, our, our interpreter, Ami. She's a believer and she just had this perplexed, perplexed look on her face. She was confused and she just said, why do you wanna adopt him? And they, they explained their reasoning and then she said, he has everything that he needs. He has people who love him. He has people who explain who Jesus is to him. He has everything that he needs. Now, this is not a story where we say we don't help those who are in need. We, we help those who are in need. But what Ami understood in that moment was that what his deepest need was, was Jesus. Do you understand that your deepest need is Jesus? the vacation, the relationship, the house, the car, your deepest need is Jesus. You won't be content, you won't be filled up until it's Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're coming in with a lot of stuff and you're like, I don't know that Jesus can take all this 
trauma, this difficulty, this pain that I brought into my world and the people around me. I don't know if Jesus can do anything with that. I want you to look at John 4. Jesus is talking to a woman at the well who things are not going well for her. Things are not desirable in her life. She can't figure out relationships. She's got to hang on to people because it means sustenance for her. It means she gets to keep living. And Jesus meets her at the well and look at his words to her in John 4. He says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The things that we chase will not satisfy. But Jesus doesn't just satisfy where we become a recipient, but that we become a giver because of how good he is to us. Christian, can I ask you, are you being blinded by things that are not meant to satisfy you. They're a signpost meant to point you to the one who will satisfy you. Maybe today you need to develop a mantra, Jesus will satisfy, Jesus will satisfy. That's chasing after the wind. Jesus will satisfy, that's chasing after the wind. I don't know, new BMW. That's chasing after the wind, Jesus will satisfy. Man, I just can't wait until my kids are in elementary school. Jesus will satisfy. That's chasing after the wind. God has you where he has you right now for a reason and a purpose. Maybe today when we have a moment of response, you need to have a time with just you and God where you say, God, I'm sorry that I've been hanging on to a water that I know will not satisfy me and I need you, the living water, to satisfy me. And if you're here and you don't know that Jesus, Romans 10 tells us that if you believe If you call on his name, he will forgive you. He will save you. It's that easy. It's that simple. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And can I tell you, like the baptism videos that we saw, there's a contentment that comes with everything's not okay. But there's a contentment. There's a peace that Paul talks about just a minute ago in Philippians 4, where he says, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. That can be yours. That's the secret. It's Jesus. It's not a fulfillment any other way. Jesus is the secret. Will you pray with me?